good. So let's start with uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Verse 20, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which one is most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And if we are trying to understand this idea of a loving family, I would say that we could stop it here. The sermon would be over and we're done. But there's one thing about that passage that intrigues me. At the end, Jesus says that you're not far. What does it mean to know that, yet for that not to be everything? Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus talks about this. He actually has another interaction that we find in Luke chapter 10. So if you're, again, using one of these Bibles and you want to follow with me, go to page 725. And in Luke 10, verse 26 through 29, you kind of have a similar interaction between Jesus and one of the teachers of the law. So let's read that. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is interesting because it's a different question, but Jesus is going to draw the same answer. So here what happens next. Verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it, Jesus asked the teacher. So the teacher answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, and then Jesus does something that's very interesting to me. He says, do this and you will live. He doesn't say, you know it right, you're good to go. He says, do this. To which I'll be completely honest, 
I tend to empathize and connect with the wrong people in the Bible. I don't know if you do that. You know, I'm reading and I'm really connecting to the bad guy. You know, it's like, yeah, that makes complete sense. This is the next verse is one that we tend to read in a negative way, but I really relate to it. So let's read uh, verse 29. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, that's a relevant question that I think it's very important for us to pause and give him a, a break and say, yeah, all of us justify ourselves and all of us want to know this. But I would even phrase that question a little differently. I would ask Jesus, okay, Jesus, how far do you want me to, to take this loving thing? How far is this love thing going to go? Because that's the key question. It's not that I don't understand love God with all my heart, with all my understanding, with all my strength. And then to take that love, right, with everything that I have, and then to transfer that and love my neighbor in the same way. In my head, I understand it, right? It's said there, number one and number one B, you know, those are the important things that we should know. But Jesus is moving his hearers, his followers to understand that there's a doing part to that love. So he continues and he says in verse 30, so let's read. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go, and do likewise. See, Jesus is making an argument here that there were two men that knew what to do. One was a priest, another one was a Levite, and they knew what to do. Yet, they, had a diff they knew with their heads, but they were having a hard time practically dealing with it. Now, this road is not like you're walking 
on 440, and it's a really wide road. This is a small road. You know, going from one side to the next is not what we think about, like going from one side of our road to, you're still pretty close to the person. You're still having to walk by them, experience them, and have to, fa- to make a f- mental exercise of realizing that for some reason I'm not going to, mentally, I'm not going to help this person. So Jesus is saying, yes, know, but transform that knowing into practice. And I would say that that is a very difficult thing to do. And I will argue that there is a a reason for that. In that particular passage in the Good Samaritan, we know that there is a piece to the culture in which actually stopping and helping that person would be moving from a place of being clean to a place of being unclean. It would have some significant sacrifice on those that are helping. Now, if you think about that, we all feel that sometimes. We feel when we see something that we don't like, we feel disgusted by it. Now, before I go on and make an argument against disgust, I want to say this, so you guys have to hear this really well. Disgust is not always bad. It actually can save your life. So if you smell something bad, your reaction should be move away from it, okay? Um, If you see something slimy, your first reaction should not be, I wanna eat that, okay? And the reason for that is um, things that smell bad and things that are slimy probably will not do well for your health. So you should avoid those things. The problem comes in when we are disgusted by things that do not harm us. Now, this is a a possibility, so I'm gonna do something and hopefully you guys uh, will relate to this. So this researcher, and by the way, I'm a psychologist by training, so this will come across as very psychological, but stay with me, okay? So this researcher, Paul um, Rosen, he did this study on disgust. And what he did was to ask participants to come into his lab and he would give them their favorite drink. Since we're in church, you know, this is water. (laughs) So here you have water. And he would tell people, this water is very clean. And he would pull out a cockroach, a sterilized cockroach, clean. And he would drop it in the water. And he would ask his participants to do what? To drink it. Now you understand that in their heads they know that the water was safe. This is sterilized cockroach. It's not going to hurt you. And he would ask his participants to drink, and what he found was what you're already thinking. They didn't drink it. (laughs) People would look at it, and in their heads, they would know, like, yeah, it's completely okay. I'm all for science. You know, I believe in this stuff, but I'm not going to drink it. So he kind of brought it down a little bit. He made another experiment, and he would ask, you know, his 
participants to come in, and instead of um, giving them a cockroach to drink from, he would give them chocolate. Now, how many of you guys like chocolate? At least two of you, I, I see. So, chocolate. Now, as you can imagine, he's a psychologist, so there's always a trick here. He would mold the chocolate into looking like poop. <laughs> and then he would do the same thing and ask people, would you drink it? Now, you can see poop, you can actually smell it. That's a different smell than chocolate. So they could smell it and know that was delicious chocolate, but they would still not eat it. And the key there is this possibility that you can be disgusted by things that can or would not harm you. Now, how do we translate that into our world? How do we understand that when we are trying to figure it out how can we be a church in which people can belong and become the family of God? How can we be a church in which we can love everyone? Well, you may have heard this. Traditionally, we've told people um, in religious settings to hate the sin, love the sinner. We've all heard this. And we understand that at some point, it makes total sense. In our heads, it's a great idea. But when you try to practice that, is when it becomes really, really hard. There's a, a, another psychologist and theologian that I love reading. His name is uh, Richard Beck, and he, he said this, and I, I wanna read it because it's so profound. He said, it is extraordinar extraordinarily difficult to love the sinner. That is, to respond to people tenderly, empathically, and mercifully when you're full of moral anger and rage over their behavior. It's really hard to love and be merciful and caring when at the same time you're feeling anger and outrage because of their behavior. He continued to say this, consider how many churches react to the homosexual community or to a young woman considering abortion. How well do churches manage the balance between outrage and empathy in those cases? I would argue that we don't do well. We struggle with that problem. We struggle with this idea because we think, how can I hate the sin, love the sinner, and how can I move from just thinking that to actually practicing that? Well, Dr. Beck, he would argue that we already have an answer to that conundrum, and he would say that it's also coming from the Bible. And he would say that this is the discipline of hospitality. Now, hospitality is action in spite of disgust, right? So, I really needed it. Yeah, it's a practical study. Say, hospitality is practical love in spite of our disgust. Practical love 
in spite our disgust. See, Jesus' ministry was centered around this. We have so many examples of Jesus sharing a table and eating a meal with those their society would be disgusted by. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, or even touching those that were ceremonially unclean, like those that had leprosy or um, had a disease. Do you understand how this idea of moving from thinking to acting actually allows for us to move beyond this disgust that is only created by our heads. There's another um, author that I would like to share with you guys. Her name is Christine Pohl, and she, she wrote a book named Making Room about this idea of Christian hospitality. And she said the following, hospitality, or the act of welcoming those that disgust us into our community, acts to restore full humanity status to both, both the outcast and ourselves. She continued to say, for much of church history, Christians address concerns about recognition and human dignity within their discussion and practice of hospitality, especially in relation to strangers. Hospitality was a basic category for dealing with the importance of transcending social differences and breaking social boundaries that excluded certain categories or kinds of persons. You see, hospitality is the action that actually breaks those social norms out that are created in our minds. I think this is another statement that she had that I think is very profound. She said, hospitality resists the boundaries that endanger persons by denying their humanness. The fact that we can actually see a human and deny them their own humanness based on our disgust, based on a reaction that we might have toward them. So hospitality becomes this resistance to the status quo in which we welcome the so-called least and we treat and we welcome them into our community recognizing that there's no least and that they have full and equal value in our community. Now, a stranger is those that are disconnected. Now, think about it in this way. Those that are disconnected from family, disconnected from community, disconnected from work, disconnected even from church. Those are people that are disconnected in some way. Now, you can clearly see these, um, these experiences when you're talking to a refugee or you're spending time with someone that is experiencing homelessness. Yet, I would argue that if not some, maybe many of us, have in some way or another experienced some kind of disconnection. That we felt lost, disconnected from our own families, from our own networks 
um, that allowed for us to seek jobs or to feel like we belonged. I want to make sure and very clear that all are welcomed here. This is very important. That this is a place where disconnected people find connection. And if it's not happening here, where is it going to happen? See, hospitality is welcoming the stranger to a place of connection. It's bringing them out of their place of disconnection into our connectedness. It has some sacrifice. Because the stranger then is welcomed into a safe, a personal, a comfortable place, a place of respect and acceptance and friendship. Now, if you're listening to me and you haven't checked out yet, I have a word of caution. Because many of you might be thinking this. Well, um, Douglas, um, I, I, see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're doing. But um, wouldn't that be a, somewhat of a na naive stance toward the world? You know, aren't there people in this world that are actually dangerous and that could be harmful? And I would say yes. And... There is a reason why when we see hospitality being extended and, and lived in the New Testament, we see that that was a discipline that was not only done individually. That usually comes from our Western background that we think of our spirituality as very individual. But the reality of hospitality is that it should, if not, it's even better when we include the stranger into our connected lives and we include other people within it, that we don't go alone. Now, I also think that there's another word of caution, and I would say that yes, it is very dangerous to be hospitable. I have to drink from this water. Here's the point. I don't think hospitality is dangerous necessarily when you do it in community because somebody dangerous could welcome into our world. I think hospitality is dangerous because it can actually change who we are. I really believe that when we bring people that we are initially disgusted by them and they enter our world, Something changes, changes within us. And the dangerous part is this, that we may start to realize that they are not monsters after all. That we may even find out that they are wounded individuals. Maybe they are sick. Or maybe they are hurt. And maybe they are experiencing those things just like we experience them. Because so when we accept them, the danger is that you'll actually start to accept yourself as a human being that is loved and worthy of being called a child of God. I think that's where the danger is, that it can actually change you in such a way that your life will never be the same.
Now, I would like to end by reading uh, a passage of the Bible over you. And what I'm going to ask you to do is something very uncomfortable. We have cups in the back. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you don't. I'm going to ask you to do something very uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Make sure that you have your wallet close to you and really tight. But close your eyes and I'm, I'm going to read a passage over you. And then after I read that passage, I'm going to pray. And then you're going to stand and we're going to go into community or communion. So I'm not going to give you guys a, a tip on when to go and what to do. Because I want it to be a time in which you can look at your own life and think, who are the people that I've seen as dangerous and, or even the people that I've seen as like, you know, I, I'm not interested in even knowing what, what's up with their life. And what I want you to think is that don't create a new category in your world. That's not going to be as helpful. Just find people that are already in your path. This is not a project, it's a way of looking at the world differently. So I want you to just listen to what I'm about to read, go into communion, and see where God leads you. Okay, you guys good? I'm going to be reading from Romans 12, uh, verses 9 through 21, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. So um, let's close our eyes, or you close your eyes, I can't, I'm reading. All right. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame in their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are 
grateful that we have experienced your love, your care, and we ask that you help us overcome the boundaries that we have created in our heads and that we may love everyone like you loved us. Father, you know exactly what is the need in the life of each one of us here. We need you, Father. We can't do this out of our own strength. We need your strength. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his life, which gave us such a wonderful picture of what does it look like to love you fully and to love our neighbors practically. Thank you also for his sacrifice, the demonstration that you love us desperately and that you care for us, that you care for this whole world. Father, thank you for the reminder that we have each week to eat some bread, to eat, to drink some juice, and to remember how much you love and how much you care for us. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.